You know, Paul, I've never, I've never seen the inside of my ears. <laughs> I feel like there's not even really a question there. What, what are you hoping to get out of me, Matt? <laughs> Paul, but I hear all good things. Great. No? no. <laughs> nope, nope. All right. Thanks to uh, 40bestearpuns.com for that one. And uh, let's get to the show. The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect the official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to The Curbsiders. I'm Dr. Matthew Otto, here with my great friend, America's primary care doctor, and a national treasure, sure. Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Paul, how are you doing? I, I'm great, Matt. Thanks for asking. How are you? You look very uncomfortable with that praise I'm heaping upon you. I but just, It's not going to stick. <laughs> I think it will. Tonight, we are going to be talking about hearing loss and tinnitus. We're going to talk about how to counsel patients who are experiencing hearing loss and go through some cases, um, maybe some worst case scenarios of the patient that walks into our office with hearing loss, Paul. And uh, But before we get to that and tell them about our guest, Paul, can you tell them what is it that we do on Curbsiders? Sure. Happy to, as always, Matt. We are, as a reminder, the internal medicine podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. Uh, and we have an amazing expert interview tonight with our guest, uh, Dr. Stephen D. Rausch. And I will let you, Matthew, tell us all about his amazing accomplishments before we get into the show. Sure. Dr. Rausch is a professor and vice chair for clinical research in the Department of Otolaryngology at Harvard Medical School. He is an otology division member and vestibular division chief in the otolaryngology department at Massachusetts Eye and Ear and Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. Dr. Rausch's clinical and research interests are combined in disorders of hearing and balance, including Meniere's, autoimmune inner ear disease, sudden deafness, and migraine. His clinical otology and neurotology practice is in medical management of hearing and balance disorders, which is why we wanted to speak with him. And before we get to the interview, a reminder that this and most episodes are available for CME for all health professionals through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. And now let's get to the interview. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Audience, you know, I want you to be at your best. We're all clinicians. We're taking care of patients. We have busy jobs. We have hectic lives. We got to take care of our physical body, but we also have to take care of our mind. And that's why I want you to consider BetterHelp. We've talked about this before on the show. We believe therapy is really important. We believe taking care of your mind and your body is really important. So if you're thinking of giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option because it's convenient, flexible, affordable, and it's entirely online. So it removes a lot of those barriers to getting yourself into care. They make it easy. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. So if you want to live a more empowered life, therapy can get you there. Visit betterhelp.com slash curb today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash curb. So, Steve, we're going to start with our first case. We're going to be talking about Mr. Weber. He is a 73-year-old retired factory worker. He's coming to our primary care office. 
He says his wife has sent him because he seems distracted and inattentive. He watches the television louder than his family, and they are getting frustrated with him when he asks them to repeat what they just said. He says he can't listen to a conversation when there's a whole lot of background noise, and he has a hard time joining in conversations on the car journey and struggles in a restaurant, kind of any situation where there seems to be a lot of background noise. He, he seems to have to work a little bit harder. He gets annoyed and embarrassed, and it's actually it's impacting how much he socializes. No prior history of head injury, no history of barotrauma that we can elicit because we're taking a much more thorough history than I typically take. No ear infection or previous surgeries. He says that he spent some time in the military as a young man, and this included detachments in Asian Africa, which required him to take anti-malarials. And now we're at high-level med student uh, history taking at this point. He tells you that his hearing has gradually become worse in recent years. And since the pandemic, with everyone wearing masks, this has made things much more difficult as he realizes that he may have been lip reading for a while to compensate. And it's just recognizing it now that he doesn't have the opportunity to do so. So I think before we get into the workup, I, I think it's often helpful just to hear broadly how you think about the patient who comes to you with what sounds like sort of chronic progressive hearing loss. Like what what big categories do you think about and what's your, what's your general approach before we get granular? We know that... By age 65, at least here in the U.S., by age 65, about one-third of the population uh, has enough hearing loss to wear hearing aids. And by age 75, it's about two-thirds of the population is hearing aid eligible. So if you just look at their date of birth, you can kind of guess whether or not they're going to have hearing loss. And the uh, uh, best understanding of age-related loss now is that it's a combination of genetics plus lifetime wear and tear on the ears, the the most modifiable health risk being noise exposure. Uh, ototoxic drugs are out there, but they're not the common ones. It's aminoglycosides and, uh, as you say, you know, an anti-malarial or something. But for most citizens, uh, ototoxicity is not really the main event. Some chemotherapy drugs, uh, platinum-based drugs particularly, can be ototoxic. But... Uh, it's noise and age, you know, and with the age being really noise plus genetics. And, and we say age-related hearing loss probably more correctly than old age hearing loss because the, the likelihood of you losing hearing over time is a bit like, uh, you know, like going bald or going gray. It, <laughs> it, it, uh, some people start in their 20s and some people may not ever lose their hair or go gray. And it's just, it's a programmed degenerative process. It varies across the population. Uh, but we do know that uh, we see more age-related loss in men than women, probably because they were more likely to be using power tools and playing in garage bands and other stuff. Um, at least the people who are in their 60s and 70s and 80s now. Um, <laughs> the, the exposure to, to loud sound in, in youth nowadays is pretty um, uh, equally distributed. Everybody's blasting their ears with loud sound. So I don't know that we're going to see a, a sex difference. Uh, anyway, when I see the patient, uh, um, uh, the story that was in your case is absolutely archetypical. Uh, the patients uh, notice it only gradually. There was a precipitous uptick in people coming to have their ears checked when COVID hit because of the mask uh, depriving them of visual cues. And the, the uh, dependence or the reliance on visual cues is something that all humans do subliminally. It's not something you have to teach people. Um, it nowadays is called speech reading because it's not just lips, but it's facial expression and gestures and, 
and everything. It's all of the all of the non-auditory information that you can glean in a conversation. And uh, the single factor that makes the biggest difference in ease of communication is signal-to-noise ratio, where the signal is what you want to hear and the noise is everything else. So right now on the podcast, I'm the signal. There is no noise. I'm pretty easy to hear. But if we were out in a noisy restaurant and you wanted to wish me happy birthday, you know, you would be the signal and the other 50 people in the restaurant would be the noise. And, and so instead of having a big signal and a small noise, they, they get closer and closer until the ratio is one and sometimes even less than one. The noise is louder than the voice. And so anything that a person can do to boost the signal or lower the noise to separate those two enhances communication. And anytime the signal and the noise get close together, it's a problem. So that that can be the loudness of the signal and and uh, being in a quiet room, you know, stepping in a quiet room and closing your your door, turning off the radio, turning off the dishwasher, turning off the microwave, facing the person when you speak to them. Don't chew your dinner while you're talking because the mouth movements are no longer synced up with what you're saying. There's a bunch of extra <laughs> mouth movements. Don't carry a conversation with you the menu in front of your face. And, and for a guy like this in your case, you know, if he's in one room watching, uh, you know, watching the World Cup and his wife is in the other room wa- chopping vegetables, they are not having a meaningful conversation. Um, you know, if, if, the, if you want to communicate with somebody who's hearing impaired, you have to be face to face in a quiet place. Medically, I really, I mean, I take that kind of a history too, all those things you listed, but it doesn't really matter. This person's problem is hearing loss and the cause is a bit irrelevant. Um, what you have to deal with is what's on his plate now. For us in primary care, I mean, I know we we talked a little bit ahead of time. I, I think the easy the easy answer is just refer anyone with hearing loss to audiometry, which I think uh, at least if you're practicing in the U.S. is fairly available. So that that's something that I commonly do. I just as far as things in a history that that might make might might make you refer quicker to see the 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 ENT doctor, maybe you can say red flags. Can you, can you point out what are some of those that you might listen for as you're taking the history from the patient? Yeah. So the, the reddest flag, the only real otologic emergency in this category is sudden hearing loss, which is unilateral. And it's defined as a loss of hearing within 72 hours. Some people wake up deaf on one side. Some people feel their hearing dropping like air going out of a tire. (laughs) You know, and over a period of 20, 30 minutes or an hour, they feel the hearing disappearing. Uh, Some people feel a click or a pop and the hearing suddenly drops. Uh, In about a little less than half of those cases, there may be some balance symptoms that uh, accompany the hearing loss. But in the majority of these cases, it's just hearing. Um, Sometimes somebody will get a head cold or an allergy thing or an airplane flight and both ears block up. But the next day, one ear opened and the other one doesn't. And uh, um, the problem with this kind of sudden hearing loss is that it's not scary. Um, Everybody's had a stuffy ear once in a while, and you don't go running to the doctor. And so it gets neglected. And and unfortunately, it really is an emergency. There's a short window of time to address it medically or it's too late. Besides that, 
um, we worry more about things like ear pain and drainage. You know, if you have blood or pus coming out of the ear, that needs prompt attention. Uh, if somebody has acute whirling vertigo, you know, that's come on rapidly or suddenly, that needs to be evaluated. Um, if it's the first episode, it needs to be evaluated for the go, no-go decision about stroke. But if it's relapsing vertigo, it's not an emergency anymore. If it's gradual hearing loss, it's not an emergency. We do have a reddish flag for somebody who has unilateral progressive hearing loss. And it's not an emergency, but, you know, both ears are approximately the same age and both ears have <laughs> the same life, ex have the same life experiences. And if somebody comes in and one ear has been going down over the last number of weeks or months, that's concerning. And it's even more concerning if there's an expanding repertoire of neurological stuff, you know, that they've lost their hearing, but now they're feeling like their balance is not quite right. Their face is twitching, you know, other, other neuro flavored symptoms. That's very worrisome and needs to be evaluated, but it's not a red, you know, not a lights and siren emergency. It's just important. So taking it back to, to Mr. Weber, who's got this, this yep. gradual non, non alarming hearing loss, what <clears throat> what exam should we be doing in the primary care office before we sort of send them out for audiometry? I know for me, I'll probably look and see if there's anything blocked up in there. I'll, I'll maybe do sort of a finger rub or a whisper test. But above me on that, is there, should we be banging tuna forks around and stick them on the foreheads? Or like, is there any <laughs> anything else fancy that we should be doing to sort of help Meh. set everyone up for success? Yeah, I actually, no. I think, I think trying to look in the ear, get, you know, practicing looking in the ear, um, you know, if you if you put your otoscope speculum in the ear and you're still seeing little hairs blocking your view, you're not in far enough. The speculum should always go in past all the hair. And if you can't get in past all the hair, you need to send the patient to somebody else. Um, the uh, if you get past all the hair, you know, hopefully you can see the eardrum and you know what an eardrum looks like. And it kind of looks like wax paper. It's kind of gray and a little shiny. And uh, if that's not what you see, either you don't know what you're looking at or there's something wrong with the eardrum. But in, in either case, they need to go see somebody else. I mean, I, I don't think that there are a lot of branches on the decision tree. I, I do think that a finger rub is a perfectly acceptable, simple hearing test. Uh, and you can do that on each side. And probably the patient was already doing it. Um, I don't really think you need to do tuning forks. Tuning forks are, you know... There's an era of medical diagnosis, uh, you know, depending on when you trained and where you trained. There are many of us in medicine who like to do the Sherlock Holmes thing. And we love to pick up on every little nuance and we look at the fingernail beds and we look at the soles of their shoes and we ask them what they have in their pockets. And we, you know, we try to <laughs> come up with the diagnosis without having to send them to the truth tunnel for an MRI or something. And I, I, I think if that's your, that's some of the joy of the work you do, absolutely get some tuning forks and look in their ears and, and do all that stuff. But the reality is if they complain of hearing loss, they need a hearing test. And if they're, you know, wife deafness doesn't show up on an audiogram. It's a, <laughs> it's a separate problem, but 
if their family is complaining, somebody who has gradually progressive hearing loss really doesn't notice it. It's one of those boiling a frog things that it's so gradual that they know what they're hearing, but they don't actually know what they're missing. They don't have a clue. And so uh, people around them are much more aware of the hearing loss than the patient is. And, uh, you know, the patients who have hearing loss, get they get very defensive because, you know, they don't want to seem old. And they, they learn to smile and nod and make believe they know what you're talking about. And they, you know, they try to laugh when they see everybody else laughing. And they have all kinds of, of adaptive strategies to try to mask the problem that they're, they're kind of out of it. And it's that sad. Hearing loss is very isolating. And um, it's also a problem because in our culture where we're so biased uh, about age, if you see somebody who's gray or bald and they're, you know, they're like not laughing at your joke or you ask one question and they answer a different one, or you speak to them and they ignore you, you know, they seem like kind of a space shot. And the, the assumption is that they're, they're experiencing cognitive decline and hearing loss can masquerade, you know, can, can mask or look like cognitive decline. And really the only problem is the patient didn't hear you. And so, uh, it's a, it's a critical thing to think about when you're doing a, a mental status exam or any kind of cognitive formal or informal cognitive assessment on your older patients. That's a great point. I wanted to ask about, so if, if we sent this patient, um, let's say they had audiometry, it showed a bilateral sensorineural pattern of hearing loss, and it, it looks like it's worse at the higher frequencies. Now they're seeing you in the office, Steve. What, uh, what might that conversation, how might you explain that to them, and what sort of things might you tell them, you know, prognosis, treatment, that sort of thing? Right. So... Um when we when we do a hearing test, a comprehensive audiogram has has two parts. It has a, a measurement of hearing threshold or loudness, which is basically plotting out what's the softest thing they can hear across a range of frequencies, kind of like you know going up the piano, um, looking from lower lower pitch to higher pitch, and see how they are how their sensitivity varies. And uh, we do a measure of hearing clarity. It's called a word recognition score, or discrimination test. And so the threshold is done first, and we figure out what level of loudness does the patient have. And, and this is plotted on an audiogram where the, the x-axis has frequency from low to high, and the vertical axis has loudness in decibels. And, and uh, uh, the, the plot is standardized internationally and it's normalized for normal human hearing. So normal people have hearing between zero and 20 decibels all the way across the top of the audiogram. And as they lose sensitivity, the curve gets lower and lower on the page. And so you might see a flat pattern where it's reduced at all frequencies, or you might see one that's worse in the highs or worse in the lows. The most common pattern of age-related loss is worse in the high frequencies. And that high-frequency um, roll off starts very high and it erodes across the page as you have more and more birthdays. Um, speech sits right in the middle of the frequency domain that we measure. And so uh, in human speech, 
different speech sounds have different characteristic frequencies. So vowel sounds, ah, oh, ooh, are low pitch, relatively low pitch. And some of the consonants um, like S or F or TH are very high frequency hissing sounds. And so those are the things you get clipped out first. And uh, and so somebody with a high frequency hearing loss, it would it, you could sort of simulate it on your radio if you turn up the bass and turn off the treble. And it just sounds like old time FM radio voice. That sort of blah, 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 booming, <laughs> low frequency sound. And you can't make out what the guy is saying. And uh, that's what a high frequency hearing loss sounds like to the patient. Um, on the, once we know their threshold, then we do the word recognition test and we turn up the sound. So it's loud enough. It's well above their auditory threshold. So we're, we're beyond audibility and we're measuring intelligibility and we deliver a list of words or hundreds of lists, but basically we, the voice on the recording, it's usually a digital recording. So it's pretty standard. It says, you will say and it gives a monosyllable with a, a consonant envelope and a vowel in the middle. You will say hit. You will say bike. You will say muff. You will say hut. You will say bat. You will say, you know, and it goes through a big long list and the audiologist records the percent correct. So there's no contextual cues like listening to a sentence there's no syntactic or, or prosodic cues it's just a bit, a little blip of sound and did you get it and in a normal person uh, they should have more than 90 percent of the words correct and and so when we measure hearing loss some people have lost loudness but if you correct for the loudness their hearing is actually crystal clear but many people, as they lose hearing, they lose both loudness and clarity. And mm. uh, it's a little bit of a, of a rough approximation, but, but generally, if you lose auditory hair cells, you lose loudness. And if you lose neurons, you lose clarity. And uh, many people, depending on, the, on their genetics and on the cause of their hearing loss, they lose both. Hearing aids make stuff louder. Hearing aids are amplifiers. And so whatever aspect of their hearing loss is a loudness deficit is very correctable. Hearing aids don't do anything for clarity. And so if somebody has a loss of clarity, that's like a radio station that doesn't tune in very well. And you can crank up the volume and it is still not a satisfying listening experience. And so patients with poor discrimination are, they may still get some benefit from hearing aids and the benefit may still outweigh the aggravation, but they're not happy about it. They are not enthusiastic hearing aid users because they hear a lot more, but they don't hear a lot better. Is there a fix for the clarity or is that still, is that like a well, cochlear implant or I'm, I'm totally, I, I I'm, I'm yeah, ignorant so, on this subject. So, um, right now, Cochlear implant is the only remedy for clarity, but it's not a. F it, cochlear implants are generally done when the clarity scores get down below 50% on that word recognition test. And uh, at least historically, we haven't done cochlear implant until both ears are down below 50%. 
Um, mm-hmm. In the last few years, a few medical centers around the world are beginning to do cochlear implant for single-sided hearing loss. And they are beginning to, at least in the U.S., there are now some insurance companies that will pay for that. But it, clo- it costs close to $100,000 to get a cochlear implant. So if your insurance isn't going to pay for it, you're not likely to get one. Um, <laughs> patients who've had I, cochlear implant get a post-op word score, typically around 50 to 60%. So if, if your word score was at 20 and you bring it up to 50, it's fantastic. If you're already at 50 and you go through a couple of hours of surgery and you know all of the recovery and you still have 50 or 60%, it's disappointing. And if yeah. your other ear has 100% clarity, a 50% ear sounds like junk and you won't even want to wear your <laughs> cochlear implant. So um, it really, it's a, it's a last resort for people who are unaidably deaf on both sides. And for those patients, it is fantastic. And nobody lives in silence anymore. You know, everybody mm. hearing with hardware, lots of people do that. But living in silence, you know, for people who've had hearing and lose it, who have acquired deafness, we can always bring back some usable hearing. Now, there's a huge biotech, biopharma industry trying to figure out how to regenerate hair cells and neurons and all kinds of other ways of, of restoring sensory neural hearing loss. But, but we're not there yet. Stay tuned. Yeah, I hear Elon Musk is thinking of a Neuralink, some sort of brain implant that's going <laughs> to... <laughs> <laughs> and then eventually he's good. That's going to, then, then we're going to start using it, not just for hearing, but to, uh, you know, to access the web and things like that. Yeah. It's going to, we'll be cyborgs, Paul. Great. Finally, I, I welcome our robot overlords. I was, I was going to ask, I, I know typically for me, you know, as we discussed it, sort of, are you having a hard time hearing? Yes. Okay. Then we should have you see, you know, an audiologist. And, and from there, it's kind of mysterious what happens. I wonder if you... Couldn't share. I know there's going to be some variability geographically and with insurance and that kind of stuff. But typically, if someone needs hearing aids, can you sort of talk us through what that process looks like? Like, how easy is that for the average patient to get? I know this is not exactly a clinical topic, but it still seems fairly relevant to, to the discussion. So uh, in the U.S., in all 50 states, every single state has a state law mandating that anyone who wants to sell you a hearing aid has to give you a minimum of 30 days money back trial. So we can look at somebody's audiogram, and I described a moment ago about how that's acquired. Uh, it's done in a it should be done in a soundproof booth by a licensed audiologist who knows something about what they're doing, and the equipment is calibrated and all that other stuff. But assuming you've had a good audiogram, somebody can look at the audiogram, and we have audiometric criteria for recommending a hearing aid. And specifically, we see that the hearing in the speech range, in the mid-range, is is worse than 30 decibel threshold. Normal is zero to 20. 20 to 30 is kind of, you know, it begins to be a problem. When you get worse than 30, uh, patients uh, are much more aware they're having a problem. And, And and often they they notice it very suddenly. And I'd give you the analogy of somebody who's standing in a swimming pool and the water is like at their upper lip and they're doing fine. But if the water gets a half inch deeper, they all of a sudden have a big hit on their quality of life. And, and that's kind of what we see on a 30 decibel audiogram. They go from 30 to 35 and all of a sudden they're drowning. You know, they're missing a ton even though the, the actual change in hearing was very small, the impact is big. So if we see an audiogram in that range, we 
recommend a hearing aid fitting, and uh, hopefully the audiologist will interview the patient about their listening needs. Uh, you know, do they go to the symphony? Do they go bowling? Do they, you know, have to work in big groups, little groups? Do they watch TV all day? Do they, you know, work in a machine shop? Like, what are the, what environments are they in and what, what do they need and want to hear? And based on that, uh, the audiologist can make some recommendations about what hearing aid instruments are worth trying. There are over 400 models of hearing aid on the market. There are about five big companies that, that currently hold about 80% of the world market share for hearing aids. Wow. The rumor is that they all get their chips from the same factory in Taiwan. Um, there, there really is very little difference from one company to another. And, and when I talk with patients about this, I, uh, this is all the same stuff I tell them shopping for hearing aid is like buying a car. All the cars have four wheels and a motor and a steering wheel. All the hearing aids have, um, you know, a microphone and an amplifier and some, you know, speaker and every company, every car company, you know, makes a two-seater sports car and a family sedan and a station wagon and an SUV. And for hearing aids, it's kind of the same thing. You know, there's a two-seater sports car and there's a minivan. You can get the economy model or leather upholstery and a sunroof. And it, all of that is the same for hearing aids. And so there are some people who really just want like, uh, uh, you know, like on and off switch, like the simplest, no frills, basic. And other people want a Swiss army knife, you know, with all the features <laughs> and all the options. And I, I don't know, I expect all of you have a microwave in your home and, you know, the microwave can bake a pie and roast a turkey and, you know, do all kinds of things, but you set it for 20 seconds and heat up your coffee. And, <laughs> do, you know, do you really want to buy something that's got all of those fantastic features and just use the on off switch. So the audiologist is trying to figure that out by interviewing the patient and then match them with something they're going to teach them how to use it, try to coach them about when to use it and how to use it. And then you send them home for a month or longer. Some places have a longer trial period. And at the end of that, then the patient can make a, an informed decision about whether or not to try the hearing aid. And, and I, I really push on my patients. Um, many of them are worried about the cosmetic aspect of the hearing aid, you know, that they're going to look old. Uh, now, everybody's got stuff stuck in their ears. You know, it's like <laughs> the stigma of having something in your ear has vanished, makes you look young. And, and, and that's fact, such a good get point. hearing aids that are, you know, <laughs> are, are a fashion statement. But um, especially seniors are concerned about looking old. And they're really not thinking about the cosmetic aspect of the hearing loss, about not responding when people speak to them, about not laughing at the joke, about, you know, misunderstanding the questions and, and appearing senile. And, uh, and if you tell them about that, all of a sudden they have a very different attitude about trying the hearing aid. And so I, I really push them to not to make the emotional decision, but to get the hearing aid, use it for a month, then decide if you want it. And if you don't, you return it and you get your money back, less a service charge. Now, I have just one last thing to say. Well, two, two last things to say about that. One of them is that the whole game has changed recently in the U.S. because there's a new federal law about direct-to-consumer hearing aid sales. And, uh, and so 
now just emerging, and, and I'm sure you're going to see tons of it over the next two or three years, uh, you'll be able to walk into, you know, big hearing, uh, big uh, pharmacy chain stores, uh, you know, the CVS and Walgreens and, you know, everybody else and, and uh, electronic stores and, you know, Target and Best Buy and like anywhere. And they're going to sell hearing aids just like you can walk into the drugstore and buy reading glasses. And uh, these uh, are not regulated by the FDA to the same degree as traditional hearing aids. Traditional prescription hearing aids are three to five thousand dollars each, yeah. and uh, so and the uh, over-the-counter hearing aids are projected to be in the sort of two to eight hundred dollar range. Uh, so you know one tenth the price, one fifth the price. Now prescription hearing aids typically last about five years. If the over-the-counter hearing aids need to be replaced every year. At the end of five years, you may have spent the same amount of money, but but these instruments are going to be um, they're going to be millions of them out there. I don't know which ones are good ones and not. You know that information will trickle out, and if you read Consumer Reports or you read Wirecutter in the New York Times, there are all kinds of tech review services that are going to be watching this very attentively. Most of these devices are going to have a controller app that you put on your phone and it'll let you, you know, set the loudness and the balance and it'll be Bluetooth compatible. So your phone can, can broadcast directly into your hearing aid. There's going to be all kinds of, of cool technology available in the next few years. But you know what? If your grandma is 80 something years old and still uses a landline phone, teaching her all of this stuff about using a hearing aid is really a challenge. And right now, audiologists who dispense hearing aids are the ones who do that. And it's going to be tough for grandma to walk into CVS and, you know, buy a hearing aid off the rack and go home and get the best use of it. Uh, I think there may be some hybrid situation where people buy their own hearing aids, but then they go make an appointment with the audiologist to learn how to use it. Just like the, uh, you know, like calling tech support for your computer, you know. <laughs> sure, or even like insulin teaching in the, the primary care office. It's not that different. That's great. I think we should try to recap the first case and and resolve this, Paul, and then and then move on to the the next case because we have we're we'll we'll put uh we'll we'll go through some other cases, but. So big, big point so far at age 75, about two thirds of people, Paul, have would be criteria to get hearing aids. So just looking at the patient's age is a good guess of, you know, do they have hearing loss or not and uh, what type they might have. The, the, the true red flag is if someone has sudden hearing loss within 72 hours unilateral, that's, you know, that's that's a red flag diagnosis. We're going to talk about a case of that. Um, and then as far as uh, hearing aids go, they, they work to make stuff louder, but the clarity portion of things, Paul, they, they don't really help as much with that. Cochlear implants maybe can address that a little bit, but like, as we said, uh, we talked in depth about who may benefit from cochlear implants and they have to have pretty severe bilateral hear lo hearing loss um, that's, that's severe. And then uh, as far as the hearing aids go, this we just talked about, there's going to be some over-the-counter products coming that'll be cheaper, but we don't know the quality and how long they're last. And the traditional hearing aids last three to five years. They cost around three to $5,000. And uh, they're, they're prescribed by, or an audio, an, 
an audiometrist, is that the right word? Uh, audiologist. Is, would teach them, audiologist. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm, I, it's late, Paul, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> An audiologist would uh, fit them and show them how to use them and sort of t talk to them about the products there. So let's say we... I just want to add two things to your summary because that was, that was great. There are two dirty little secrets about hearing aids, and, and uh, I, I try to warn the patients about it so that they're not disappointed or upset. One of them is that they only work if you put them in your ears. And, and so... <laughs> <laughs> so buying the hearing aid and sticking it in your dresser drawer, your glove compartment is not economical. Um, and the second thing is that the hearing aids don't know what you want to listen to. They just make everything louder. They don't discriminate. And uh, so that in a quieter environment, uh, having a conversation around the house, uh, talking to the kid at the checkout counter at the grocery store or, you know, everyday life, hearing aids can be very useful. If your complaint is discriminating speech in noise, you have trouble at social events and, uh, and uh, loud restaurants, hearing aid is not going to make you happy. And uh, there, are a, there are a few workarounds. You can get remote microphone that you clip on your dinner date that Bluetooths into the hearing aid, but it, it, it only can hang on one other person, not everybody you might encounter at the party. So it, it's really hearing aids are aids, but they're not perfect remedies. Yeah, this has been great. This is total, total new ground for me, Paul. I, I didn't know hardly any of this stuff that, that we just learned here. And this is, I think this is very useful to counsel patients uh, when we're sending them to audiometry, because right now I'm just sending them with no, you know, I'm not, I have nothing to add. I'm like, yeah, we'll send you there. Yeah, somebody else should do something. I don't like know this. what happens either. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe tell me what happens next time. So, okay. So Mr. Weber, we hook him up. Uh, we, we teach him all this great stuff we've just learned. He gets some hearing aids. He's happy. But now, Paul, I think you have another case. Why don't you, why don't you tell us about Miss, is it Eustace? I was going to give you Stace, just to say and, and keep you the thing, but I, I could be mispronouncing. But we'll say Ms. Eustace is a 50-year-old diving instructor who enjoys cold water swimming, uh, has recently had COVID, and comes to your office saying she's had sudden hearing loss in her right ear for the past three days. It is not painful. She thinks she maybe has water in her ear. She feels like she always has wax in there, and she does endorse instrumentation with cotton tips to try to clean the things out. Um, we look in her ears in the office, the notoscope, because we're excellent doctors and we don't see anything abnormal. We do see the tympanic membrane, so we feel very proud of ourselves. The patient also endorses that she hears some buzzing in that same ear as well. Uh, and so we do the right thing, having just listened to this episode and refer this patient promptly to the ENT clinic. And so I wonder, for this patient who has, and we talked a little bit about this, who now has this acute unilateral hearing loss, how is your approach different and sort of what, how are you thinking about this patient differently than the last patient that we just saw? Right. So the majority of people with sudden hearing loss have conductive hearing loss. They have earwax that's occluding the canal, or they have uh, fluid behind the drum from a head cold or hay fever, or taking an airplane trip and having, you know, impaired eustachian tube function. And uh, so most of the people with unilateral sudden hearing loss don't really have an emergency. But there are some who do because it's a unilateral sensory neural hearing loss. It's a sudden nerve deafness, and that is an emergency. And uh, traditionally, the way we would assess that at the bedside, you know, in the examining chair, is with a tuning fork test. 
you know, doing a Weber test where you put the fork on the front of the forehead and you ask if the sound lateralizes. So, you know, most primary care settings and most emergency rooms don't have tuning forks. And if they do, the people don't necessarily know how to do the test properly. And it turns out there's a very easy thing you can do without a tuning fork, which is to ask the patient to hum, to just go, hmm. And uh, it turns out that if they have a conductive hearing loss, they will hear their voice in the blocked ear. And you can do the experiment. If you, if you stick your finger in your ear, that's a 40 decibel conductive hearing loss. <laughs> so you can put your finger in your ear and, and hum, or you can start humming with your ears open and then block one ear and your voice jumps into the blocked ear. If they have a sensory neural loss, their voice lateralizes to the healthy ear. Opposite direction. So the, the, if you want to have it as a mnemonic, if they hum and their voice goes to the bad ear, that's good. If it goes to the good ear, that's bad. <laughs> <laughs> but this is the same way to interpret the Weber, right? It's exactly the same because you're doing essentially doing the same thing, right? Yes, so but you don't need if, a tuning fork. They, they just hum. I love it. And you get the I exact same this response. Is... Your clinic nurse could do it over the telephone when they call for an appointment. <laughs> You ask, the nurse can ask them to hum. And if the voice lateralizes to their good ear, the one that does not feel blocked, they need to get to an ENT within the next 24 hours. It's urgent. See, Paul, this is why we do the show. This is just, <laughs> you know, it's chef's like this. kiss, Paul. <laughs> I love that. Okay. Okay. So, so we're... And then, and then, you know, yeah, I, I hope you can look in their ear and I hope you can clean the wax and see the drum and, you know, be able to tell if they have an air fluid level or, you know, some other retracted drum, some other abnormality that might explain a conductive loss. But if they, if they have a normal looking ear and their, and their, uh, and their, their hum test lateralizes away from that blocked ear, that's an emergency. That's idiopathic, sudden sensory neural hearing loss. And about 1% of those patients have something neurological like a vestibular schwannoma or a stroke or a meningioma, uh, MS, you know, demyelinating disease. But 99% of those patients, their MRI is normal and they need, uh, they need some corticosteroids ASAP. Steve, can I ask, because I, the, the differential for this, they, I, so idiopathic, idiopathic sensorineural hearing loss, that's, you know, that's on the differential, but there's a bunch of different infections, like viral infections, all sorts of things, autoimmune conditions, trauma, toxins, all sorts of things. So we're still taking a history, asking like drug exposures, trauma, if you do they want. have infectious symptoms? Do we think they have like like lupus or other, some autoimmune thing? It's, it sounds like that's probably not going to be the majority of the time uh, that, that we're going to need to do. Like I said earlier, if you're that Sherlock Holmes guy and you want to take time collecting all that information, feel free. But no matter what, they need an MRI and steroids. And got it. It's it. There is a a window of time that uh, arguably is the first two weeks. Some most of us will treat our patients even if they come in up to four weeks. But if they've had that hearing loss more than four weeks, they're out of luck. Nothing's going to bring it back. And every day that passes without treatment, the chance of, of hearing recovery goes down. 
So it, it really is an emergency to get them evaluated. And if an audiogram confirms a significant sensory neural hearing loss, uh, we all treat them with steroids, either by mouth or by injection directly into the ear. Some docs do both. Um, but the, the, the standard treatment in almost everywhere is steroids for a couple of weeks. Steve, I'll tell you a secret about internists. They all think they're Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> or they all want they all want to be they all want to be Sherlock Holmes. But you know, you I mean you gotta make you gotta make your day fun. You know, you have to you have to have that we don't get to we don't get to surgerize people, so we have to we have to do <laughs> well, this cognitive weightlifting of I, trying I think to think that's through. Fine. I, I'm yeah. not critical of that, but no matter what you discover, Sherlock. You need to send them for a hearing <laughs> test and, and, and you need to get on the phone to your local ENT person and tell them that you think this person has idiopathic sudden hearing loss. They can't wait until, you know, next May right. for an appointment. Yeah. So I'm thinking about how, Paul, what would, would you, would you? Would you be pulling the trigger on the MRI and the steroids, Paul, before sending this person? I'm, 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 I'm not sure. Depending on, I possibly the steroids. This is not something I encounter very often, but I, it, it sounds like that's the thing that has some urgency to us. So I would probably fire both. Well, I was going to actually ask what steroid dose or what steroids that you actually use, Steve. But I, that might be something I would start while trying to get them to ENT. The MRI, from a practical standpoint, like is not going to happen within the next 24 hours, unless I send them to the emergency department, probably. Yeah, you don't, you don't need to wait for the MRI to start the steroids, but you really do want an audiogram before you start the steroids, if it's at all possible, because you want to document what their hearing was before you intervene. If the hearing isn't that bad, you might, if they have other medical, putting somebody on high-dose prednisone for a couple of weeks is not chicken soup. You yeah, know, they, they can have side effects and, and, uh, Different centers use different routines. Uh, our center and, and uh, a lot of places will put patients on 60 milligrams of prednisone every day for 14 days and then a five-day taper, you know, 50, 40, 30, 20, 10. That's a, that's a real blast of steroids. And uh, I, you're not going to make somebody Cushingoid, but you certainly can throw their diabetes out of whack and you can give them, you know, upset stomach and sleep disturbances and all kinds of other stuff so that... Uh, I think if you're going to do that, you really want to have an audiogram to show that they truly have a unilateral sensory neural hearing loss. And then, you know, when they come back for follow-up, you, you, you've got the MRI by then. Uh, yeah. So, so it's an MRI with contrast, correct? Yep. And, uh, and, and we, Paul, this, this reminds me of like, if we think someone has a temporal arteritis, generally I'm referring the person, I'm calling either an ophthalmologist or a rheumatologist, sometimes both. And it's like a warm handoff situation. Yep. It's not like I say, Hey, yeah, see an ophthalmologist. <laughs> Call the number on the uh, paper I, and I'll see you in three months. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's not, yeah. it's not like that. So that's right. Okay. And, and, and so the, 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 this condition of yeah, idiopathic sudden hearing loss, it strikes about one person in 5,000 per year. So I'm in Metro Boston. We see, you know, three to 500 cases a year. Um, but that's not tens of thousands of cases a year. It's, you know, a few hundred cases in a city. Um, so I don't know how many you're going to see in your practice. The prevailing theories are that it might be viral, it might be ischemic, and it might be immune mediated. And we think those are probably all true in different patients, but we don't have any way to discern who is who. So we just hose everybody down with corticosteroids and hope for the best. And, and, uh, 
In patients who are treated within the first 10 to 14 days, about 75% of them will get some improvement on the steroid, but only about 20% will come back to normal. And the the tinnitus that this person has, is that is that typical of somebody with this condition? Yeah, so in the acute setting, a tinnitus is just a generic indication of an unhappy ear. Um, mm-hmm. But everybody with hearing loss has tinnitus. It doesn't matter what the cause of the tinnitus or how long they've had it. It's, it's over 90% of people with hearing loss of any cause or magnitude experience some tinnitus. But if the ear is acutely sick, if there's a, you know trauma from loud noise, if they have this kind of a sudden loss, if they have a, an effusion or they have barotrauma from an airplane trip, yeah, they're going to have tinnitus. And that's not really very informative medically. It's annoying, but it's not informative. And uh, if the situation, if the damage in there is, is permanent, they will always have tinnitus, but the tinnitus during the acute phase is much louder and much more intrusive. And uh, over time, tinnitus that begins as a peripheral process really becomes a central process. And it's exactly the same as phantom limb in an amputee. But in this case, it's hearing that's been amputated. And so those auditory centers in the brain that are expecting an incoming signal and not getting it say, hey, where's my signal? And they turn up the gain in the brain and you begin to hear the random electrical activity in that circuitry, just like static on your radio when there's no station. Hmm. And that kind of central tinnitus, uh, uh, somewhere between 30 and 90 days after ear damage, it transitions from peripheral to central. And then it doesn't matter. You could remove their ear. You could cut the nerve. The tinnitus is still there. It's living in the brain. Do you have um, any so, tips for the patient that's suffering from that chronically? I, I know this. You we could do a whole episode on tinnitus, but what, what could we tell them to do? So the first thing is that you want to assess hearing in somebody who's got tinnitus because if they have hearing loss, they're going to have tinnitus. But they might have tinnitus for other reasons. They might have normal hearing. Um, for people with chronic tinnitus, whether it's unilateral or bilateral, we don't really care what it sounds like. It could be hissing, humming, buzzing, chirping, quacking, uh, shrieking. It doesn't make any difference. We do separate pulsatile tinnitus to a separate category. But if it's just a, you know, an, a, a, a more or less steady sound, a variable intensity, we think of that like an alarm system for your general health and well-being. When you are sick, when you're tired, when you're stressed out, when your muscles tighten up, it's going to be louder. And when you're at Club Med on the beach, you're not going to hear it. And so if you are finding your tinnitus to be more intrusive, it's bugging you more, you're noticing it more, it's a time to take inventory about those other health and wellness metrics, sleep, stress, fitness, nutrition. You know, your neck, are you hunched over your computer keyboard all day or just carry tension in your neck? And so if you take care of that stuff, the tinnitus kind of moves into the background. It's also important to know that tinnitus is an attentional process. That means when you attend to it, you put it right on center stage and amplify it. And when you attend to something else, it kind of gets pushed aside. I'd give you the vision analogy of windshield wipers. When you drive on a rainy day, those wipers are going back and forth in front of your face. You don't even see them because you're looking at the road. If you watch the wipers, you couldn't drive your car. 
And so people who fall into the trap of checking on their tinnitus or noticing it or listening to it, uh, it makes it worse. When, when I was young and training, we had a very famous ear professor, and he would ask his tinnitus patients what size shoe they wore. Size 10, go out and buy a pair of size 9. By the end of the day, you won't <laughs> notice that tinnitus. <laughs> What an empathic. He <laughs> was not wrong. <laughs> yeah, he was very empathic. He also used to say to the patients, don't worry about it unless it stops. Because that means you're dead. <laughs> so, My God, Cold comfort. <laughs> yeah, I don't say that to patients generally, but. All right. So. With so to recap what we talked about, so with Miss Eustace Paul Eustace for Eustacean, I guess uh, she. So we've we've sent her for an audiogram. She was started on the steroid sixty of prednisone uh, for about two weeks or so. Then it was tapered. She had an MRI, no schwannoma, no multiple sclerosis, uh, no other retrocochlear pathology, and. Um, we're hoping that she will will fully recover. Anything else, uh, Steve, you think to talk about with this case here? So patients who lose one ear, you know, or lose some of the hearing, have asymmetric hearing loss, they have only two real, well, three symptoms if you count tinnitus. They all have tinnitus, but that's intense at the beginning and it gradually tends to move into the background over six to 12 months, regardless of the hearing outcome. Mm -hmm. But the two auditory things that persist, they lose the ability to localize where sound is coming from. So if they hear, if they're driving and they hear a siren, they have to check all their mirrors looking for the flashing lights. And if they lose their cell phone in the house and it's ringing, they can't find it. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and, uh, and the other, so they lose sound localization. And they have increased difficulty discriminating voices in noise because all the noise and the voice are funneling into the same ear. You know, they can't position themselves with one ear toward the noise and one ear toward the, their dinner date. Um, and those two, side, those two manifestations of single-sided hearing loss are very annoying, but they're not really a big handicap. And... Uh, if you had single-sided deafness, you could not get a job as a commercial airline pilot or an FBI agent, but that's about it. And uh, in medical legal instances, uh, single-sided deafness is considered zero handicap. There are you know, formulas to calculate percent disability. It isn't a disability to be deaf on one side. A lot of people are born deaf on one side. They don't even know. They, they've never, you know, they never noticed or they lost hearing on one side in early childhood. They play sports. They, you know, do whatever they want. They become musicians. It doesn't really cause a handicap. If you're used to having stereo binaural hearing and you lose it, it's very disturbing. But gradually people get used to it and it's not, it's not life altering for most patients. And so, um, I try to, um, calm down my patients and we go through the treatment and all of that stuff. But I, I really, you know, tell them to don't rush to try unproven therapies. Don't rush to have, you know, buy expensive electronic equipment or get implants in your head or anything. Give it a year. See if you get used to it. And almost everybody gets so used to it a year later, they're hardly really noticing it. 
But if that Neuralink thing happens for real, Elon <laughs> Musk thing, I, you know, I think everyone should get that. But anyway, uh, <laughs> I, all right, that's, this is, this is great. Uh, I think with the rest of our time, we should go through one more case, Paul. I think this is Miss Anita. Do you want to read that? Sure. So our, our last patient of the, the day will be Miss Anita. She is a 28-year-old patient. She is coming to the primary care office with a two-year history of fluctuating hearing loss. She also needs a sensation of fullness and muffling of sounds in the right ear. She notices intermittent buzzing noises in that same ear. The last couple of months, she has been experiencing episodes of severe dizziness. They last about four hours. They resolve spontaneously. And when she has them, she's experiencing nausea and vomiting. No other significant past medical history. Uh, we do otoscopy in the office. It shows no pathologic findings. Um, and we audiometry re reveals that she has low-frequency sensorineural hearing loss with normal hearing in the mid-frequencies. So we're, we're painting a picture for Ms. Anita, but for you seeing this patient, is there uh, a broad differential that you think about as you're approaching this patient who has these symptoms of both vertigo as well as sort of waxing and waning hearing loss? Right. So she meets all of the international diagnostic criteria for Meniere's disease which includes uh, low to mid-frequency sensory neural hearing loss, either fluctuating or progressive, episodic vertigo uh, on multiple, you know, more than one occasion, uh, and the vertigo should be anywhere from 20 minutes to 12 hours, and uh, typically with some tinnitus or aural fullness. So she meets all those diagnostic criteria. Um, however, uh, Meniere's disease uh, strikes about one person in 5,000 per year. It's very similar to... to sudden hearing loss. Uh, in the U.S., in the whole United States, it's estimated there are about 60,000 cases uh, that pop up. And uh, it's typically people who are in their 40s and 50s and 60s, and she's quite young. And it turns out that vestibular migraine, which is migraine causing vertigo and auditory symptoms, um, could cause all of these symptoms. And migraine in a, in a young woman between puberty and menopause, 30% of women meet diagnostic criteria for migraine headache or ocular migraine. And so anytime we see a dizzy patient, regardless of sex or age, anytime we see a dizzy patient, it's imperative to take a headache history. And, and even, I would say, even broaden that out to say a migraine history, because not everybody with migraine headaches has headaches. You know, they may have ocular migraine or they may have irritable bowel syndrome, or they may have fibromyalgia, which are all various manifestations of migraine. And they may have first-degree family members who are migraineurs, or they may have had benign recurrent vertigo of childhood, or they may have had a severe recurring abdominal pain in childhood, which are all pediatric versions of migraine. And so a young woman who's coming in with ear symptoms and vertigo the chance of this being migraine is 10 to 15 times greater than the chance of it being garden variety Meniere's disease. Now, there is no test for migraine. It's a clinical judgment. But uh, you certainly should get the headache history. And if it turns out that every one of her dizzy spells transitions to a killer headache or every headache transitions to vertigo or they tend to, you know, co-occur, their comorbidities, or if there are migraine indicators, if every time this patient has one of her vertigo attacks, she's intensely photophobic, for example, that would be a, a you know, Meniere's doesn't cause photophobia. 
migraine is a neurological condition. And if you listen to migraineurs tell their story, they have vision things, they have other sensory, they have numbness and tingling, they, they have nausea, vomiting, brain fog. They've got this laundry list of sensory distortions and disturbances. And, and Meniere's is an ear thing. And so if you listen to the story and it sounds earish, it's probably <laughs> Meniere's. If it sounds brainish, it's probably migraine. And you know, Sherlock, this is right up your alley. This is a this is the the perfect instance for you to really stretch your stuff. You're going to be a hero by listening carefully to them tell their story, and then put them on a you know migraine diet and you know some other migraine trigger management stuff, uh, and see what happens. I have diagnosed some people with chronic sinusitis as having migraine headaches now. So that one feels good. That one does feel good. Yeah. yeah. Oh, you were going to ask something. Oh, I was going to say. So let's let's say Matt takes this spectacular two-hour history. Um, he he spends <laughs> his, his office visit, just his entire office session doing nothing else, and it feels very eerie to him. I, I, I guess it's other than sort of giving me vague flashbacks to medical school. I feel like I don't have a great handle on sort of what causes many years. Like it's. I feel like I'm, I'm reading about like endolymph hydrops as a thing. I don't know what that means. And I think actually the paper you wrote talks about the fragile ear and the treatment of that is actually pampering the ear, which I thought was a, a funny way of framing things. But like, what, what do we know about why, why this is happening? If we actually nail the diagnosis that happens in one in 5,000 patients. Uh, what I've written and what I teach and what I think is widely accepted, not just by me, uh, is that the ear, like, every other organ in the body, every organ in the body has a limited repertoire of response to injury. You know, if you beat up a liver, it makes cirrhosis and you can beat it up with a virus or with a toxic drug or with radiation or, you know, but it gets cirrhotic. If you, if you beat up an eyeball, you know, the retina can degenerate, the lens can go opaque or the pressure can go up. Those are the three things eyes do when they're sick and unhappy. And, and if you beat up an ear, it can be, you can get dizzy or you can get deaf or both. If a patient has a problem that affects both hearing and balance, and if the symptoms are episodic, we call it Meniere's disease. And so at, you know, at kind of the, the most basic level, that's the label on the dumpster full of all the people <laughs> with erratic, inconsistent ear function. And, you know, we, we try to draw a slightly tighter boundary by saying that the hearing loss, you know, early on is predominantly low frequency and the vertigo is 20 minutes to 12 hours. But, you know, it's a sick ear. And um, we've learned in the last few years that, um, uh, uh, let me back up and just say that if we look, you know, at hundreds of men ear patients, we see that it's about equal male and female. Most people develop symptoms in their 40s and 50s. Two-thirds of patients have their vertigo attacks in clusters and then have smooth sailing for months at a time. And one-third of patients just have sporadic attacks. It's very uncommon. Maybe 5% of many-year patients identify reliable triggers. You know, every year during hay fever season or every, you know, a woman where every month when she's perimenstrual, she might get an attack. But for the vast majority, it's pretty random. And we don't really know what's wrong in that ear. We don't know if it's, you know, genetics or trauma, childhood infection, bad karma, alien ray beams. I mean, we don't really know what's wrong with the ear. We just know it doesn't work right. 
And if we tested, if we did those bedside tests, this is like more of the sensory neural pattern. It's a sensory neural loss. We've learned in the last few years that about one third, almost one third of Menier patients have a congenital malformation of the vestibular aqueduct, which is a little canal where inner ear fluid recycling happens. And if you know to look for it, you can see that on a high resolution CT scan. But hardly anybody looks for it because it's quite new information and there's nothing you can do about it. Um, however, the, the phenotype of patients with that that hypoplastic aqueduct is interesting because there's much more likely to affect both ears and lead to binaural menieres. And it's much more common in men than women. And people who have that, their menier symptoms usually start in their 20s or 30s, not in their 50s. So where we've had this dumpster full of menier patients, we're beginning to find that we can lift subgroups. We can begin to bin you know, into, into smaller groups, certain subtypes of Meniere's disease by other uh, clinical features. The people who do not have that vestibular aqueduct hypoplasia have degenerative changes in the mucosal lining of their, or the epithelial lining of the endolymphatic sac. And we don't know why that sac lining is degenerating, but it leads to all kinds of homeostatic failure in the inner ear. What's really important to convey to a patient if they do have Meniere's disease is that we can always get rid of their vertigo attacks. Over 99% success controlling Meniere vertigo attacks, but nothing we do preserves the hearing. And at least currently in 2022, everybody with Meniere's disease gradually loses hearing in the affected ear and none of the treatments seem to prevent that. So a Menier ear is a degenerating ear. It's not that Menier's causes degeneration. It's the degeneration causes the symptoms that we call Menier syndrome. And we don't know why the ear is degenerating. And eventually, 75% of Menier ears degenerate to a point we call burned out within about 10 to 15 years. A burnt out ear has no usable hearing. The hearing is so poor that they can't use it or wear an aid. And it doesn't have the horsepower to make vertigo anymore. Not everybody burns out in 10 years, but 75% of people burn out in, in about 10 to 15 years. I do want to get on to treatment of this, but I want to recap quickly. So this is not as common as vestibular migraine. And so we should really take that history, which I think that's a great, that's a great pearl for the audience. And that this is uh, most commonly in people for, in their 40s and 60s. So if it's a younger person, you might even think more likely this is a migraine. <clears throat> and then we mentioned that this was more a low to mid-frequency hearing loss as opposed to our classic old age hearing loss of older age is the higher frequency. Is there other testing besides audiometry? Like, do because this is often unilateral, right? So, would we often would we also be obligated to get an MRI for these patients? MRI with contrast or a CT scan if they can't get an MRI? If you take all people with Meniere's disease, about twenty five to thirty percent of them may eventually involve both ears, but it's almost unheard of for them to be involved simultaneously. It's sequential. One ear goes. And then five, 10, 20 years later, the other ear may act up. It's very, very rare to see both ears active in the same time frame. 
And in fact, it's so rare that you would want to look for some other weird problem like autoimmunity or some other rare thing. Um, it, it tends, if it's going to be bilateral, it's sequential. Um, if it's a new menier patient, we do recommend an MRI scan. And the traditional MRI we do with and without contrast, looking for retrochochlear lesions like schwannoma and, and meningioma and tumor and stroke, you know, stroke and demyelinating disease. However, there is a new way of doing MRI. You need a 3T scanner. You know, you need a modern high intensity scanner and the right software, but there is a Menier MRI sequence and you you do a contrast MR and you shoot the regular pictures of the ear and brain. And then you take the person out of the scanner and have them sit around for four hours or you send them for other tests or do a crossword puzzle. And after four hours, you put them back in the scanner and, uh, and you shoot a particular sequence. Uh, and what happens during those four hours is that the contrast gets into the inner ear but only into the perilymph, not into the endolymph. And so it outlines the, uh, the cochlear and vestibular structures, and you can see endolymphatic hydrops. Super accurate. Um, but it, it's a very particular scan. You, you have to have the right equipment, and you have to have the software, and you have to have a radiologist who knows how to read it. But now, for the first time, you can absolutely see if somebody has Meniere's disease. Very cool. And uh, so I, I, that is not widely available yet. It's, you know, showing up at hotsy totsy academic centers, um, <laughs> but not, not all over the place. It, it sounds like this condition is un uncommon enough that probably we're not going to be diagnosis, n diagnosing and treating this ourselves in primary care without the involvement of uh, them seeing an audiologist and an otolaryngologist and getting some, getting some, uh, medication advice there. What, what might you do for this? If you, if we have a convincing case, right? So I would just say in a general ENT practice, they might only see one or two cases of men years in a year. Mm -hmm. it, it, you know, in an otology practice, we see a lot of it, but in general ENT, it is still very uncommon. Um, mm -hmm. so when we see patients, we, do an audiogram, we, you know, get an MRI, we say, well, yep, sounds like Meniere's disease. And for me, I'm a treatment minimalist, and I'm looking for the least intervention that will satisfy the patient. So I, I use patient-centered outcome metrics. And, and, and so my first line of intervention is some adjustments of diet and lifestyle. P three things. Patients do best if they have a very regular daily schedule, so they get their body in a rhythm. Every day they get up at the same time. Every night they go to bed at the same time. They eat meals about the same time every day, try to get a little regular exercise. It doesn't mean they can't skip a meal or stay up late for a ball game or a party, but generally we want their schedule to be very regular. People who work rotating shifts, people who skip meals and binge, people who do a lot of international travel tend to be much more symptomatic. So number one is regular schedule. Number two is a general medical tune-up. The ear is fragile and any other systemic stresses and strains might fire up the symptoms. Hay fever and allergies, sleep disturbances, acute or chronic pain, anxiety and depression, hormone dysregulation, other metabolic disturbances. You basically want to set all the dials to healthy 
as best you are able. And I will tell you that in the general population, uncontrolled sleep apnea and um, hormone dysregulation and, and uncontrolled migraine are the three biggest triggers that make men years unmanageable. You have to deal with those things if you want to ever calm down somebody's menier attacks. And then the third thing is, is their diet. And when we talk about diet, what we're really talking about is fluid and electrolyte management. So I ask menier patients to limit caffeine to one hit per day. Maximum could be coffee, tea, coke, or chocolate, and not a supersized, you know, gigantic cup of something, but, you know, a regular sized cup of coffee or, or tea, um, one a day. Same with alcohol, one drink in a day could be beer or wine or spirits, but maybe not one of each. And the most important thing is we want to even out their sodium intake. And there's a ton of literature. The, uh, old literature about putting menier patients on low salt diet, it is totally bogus. And there is no reason to put people on low salt diet. Unless you don't like them. <laughs> there, well, I mean, if they need it for congestive heart failure or, you know, chronic renal insufficiency, fine. But from a menier point of view, the, the ideal is to have very consistent sodium through the day. So it isn't spiking up and down, but it doesn't have to be low. My old professor years ago used to say that even a clock that doesn't run is right twice a day. And so that, that recommendation of putting everybody on low salt, it wasn't working because the salt was low. It was working because it was the same all the time. Interesting. And so I have many patients who are little old ladies in Chinatown here in Boston, and they eat a traditional Chinese diet. And I don't know, they probably get 8,000 milligrams of sodium a day. <laughs> But if they eat frequent small meals and spread that through the day, their vertigo goes away. And in patients who go overboard with sodium restriction, you know, they're trying to get down below 1,500. I mean, if you were in a coma in the ICU, you'd be getting, what would you get? 2,500 milli equivalents. Of, you know, you get 2,500 milligrams of sodium to lie there. If somebody goes home and tries to get down on 1,500 or 1,200 a day, their body is so desperate for sodium that if they have one moment of indiscretion, if they eat one handful of chips, they've doubled their day's sodium. It's like the delta is gigantic and they have attacks. So they become very brittle and unmanageable. If they equilibrate on a no added salt diet, which is two to three grams of sodium a day, that's easy. You know, they can live their life. They can eat at a friend's house. They can go out to dinner. And if they, you know, if they, if they have something a little bit more salty, it's the delta is small and it doesn't cause any trouble. So we really want them to even out their sodium. So it's about the same in every meal. Does not have to be low, but it's about the same meal to meal. Daily totals about the same day to day. That's dietary sodium. Separate from that is fluid replacement if they sweat. And if you have patients who are, you know, do manual labor, if they're athletic and they go take a spin class or, uh, you know, they go for a run or they go mow the lawn on a hot summer day, they're sweating electrolytes and they're losing, you know, four to 800 milligrams of sodium per hour. And so when many patients are sweating, they need to be sipping a good quality sports drink, which has four to 800 milligrams of sodium per liter. And they need to sip it all through the workout at about a liter an hour. 
you know, if it's a little tiny woman, the the replacement rate might be less than that. But for a, you know, 70, 80 kilogram guy sweating heavily, soaking his t-shirt, needs a liter an hour, and you sip it all through the workout. You don't want to dehydrate for an hour at the gym and then drink plain water <laughs> at the end of your workout. Your right. good ear doesn't care, but your menu ear is going to go nuts. So if we take all the menu patients who walk in and do those three things, regular schedule, medical tune-up, manage the fluid and electrolytes, within a couple of months, two-thirds of patients have no more vertigo. Well, Matt, this actually sounds kind of encouraging to me because I feel like this is this yeah. actually feels like primary care stuff. Like we can we can diagnose and treat OSA. We can, you can do that. We can manage diabetes. We can manage hypertension. We can talk about diet. So like this, this feels squarely within our wheelhouse. Great. So I'm happy to deputize you <laughs> and everybody else who's listening. Um, I give all my menu patients a prescription for lorazepam, one milligram, and they take it sublingually when they feel an attack coming. Um, everybody who's had a few menu attacks recognizes the warning signs that here it comes. And, you know, they may start feeling queasy and sweating or their stomach may start to bubble or they move their head and then their eyeballs catch up. But whatever it is, there's this moment of realization. And that's when you put the lorazepam under your tongue. It is not something that you use if you get up and you say, oh, I got this big meeting this morning. I can't afford to miss that. I better, I better take a lorazepam. That is, that is not correct utilization of the drug. You only use it when you're certain it's a real attack about to come. And when you're certain, the sooner you take it, the better. You put it, it's not made as a sublingual prep, but you use it that way because if you swallow it, you're going to throw it right up again. If you put it under your tongue, it gets into your system much faster. It starts to act centrally in about 10 minutes. It peaks in an hour, wears off in about six or eight hours. You can repeat it up to four times in 24 hours if it's a really severe attack. So patients take one an hour later. If they're really still going in orbit, they take a second one. They go take a nap. So sublingual lorazepam for the breakthrough attacks and those three lifestyle adjustments. And that that's all you need for about two-thirds of the patients. Takes a couple of months to read return on investment. So I see those patients back in a couple of months. And if they come back and say, yeah, you know, this is good enough, then we're done. Good enough for them is certainly good enough for me. If they come back and they say this is not good enough, then we need to ratchet up the treatment and those patients get put on a diuretic. Now, the diuretic recommendation came from the very early, you know, mid 20th century when people first learned about endolymphatic hydrops. They said, oh, they're retaining fluid in their ear. We should put them on a low salt diet. And then they said, oh, there's too much fluid in the ear. Put them on a diuretic. Well, do you believe that taking a diuretic makes you pee endolymph? <laughs> I, <Good> questions. <laughs> I guarantee it doesn't. So the, the reason that a diuretic might help is because there's all this fluid and electrolyte fussiness in the inner ear and the homeostatic systems are not working. The same, you know, potassium and sodium ion pumping things, that the, the channels and pumps that are in your kidney, you know, are also in your ear. And so diuretics act on the ear to, to bolster this inadequate homeostatic uh, stuff. And so we usually use a drug that's a combination of HCTZ and triamterine because we're 
ear doctors and we don't want to deal with metabolism like potassium. So, you know, the HCTZ and triamterene, one wastes potassium and one, one uh, saves it. And so they cancel out. And there, you know, there are a couple of proprietary names for that that I won't mention. So, but, but easy to find and you get them the generic and they take it once a day. And within, a, and so two thirds of the patients get better on the diet and lifestyle. It leaves one third who are symptomatic. We put them on a diuretic and within a couple of months, two thirds of them are under control. So diet plus diuretic, we have about 90% of men year patients are, are, have their vertigo under control. The last 10% need an invasive treatment, which usually is medication injected through the drum into the middle ear where it diffuses into the inner ear. And that can either be a corticosteroid, which works sometimes. It's controversial how well it works, um, but it is reimbursable. So that uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's a popular treatment. Um, and when it does work, it's quite similar to injecting steroid into a joint, you know, into a shoulder, into a knee. It improves the symptoms for a while, but eventually it kind of wears off and you haven't really cured anything. And patients who benefit from intratympanic steroid typically need it repeated a couple of times a year. Um, the mm -hmm. alternative is intratympanic gentamicin, which in my hands is much more effective, but it is, you know, you're it's ototoxic. You're killing off some of the vestibular signaling. And the, the idea is you want to weaken the ear so much that it doesn't have the horsepower to make vertigo anymore. And in fact, you can kind of think about it like a fast forward button. It achieves in two weeks what Mother Nature was going to do in 10 or 15 years. Hmm. The, the important thing, or one of the important things to know about the genomycin is that it's preferentially vestibulotoxic. About 20% of people who get intratympanic gent injections will have a decrement in hearing, but 75 or 80%, it doesn't do anything to the hearing. It just hmm. weakens the balance, so the vertigo goes away. So I'm a, I'm a big fan of IT gent, but that is controversial. Some people, there are some surgical remedies you could contemplate at that point. Um, but it's only about 10% of people who need invasive therapy. 90% we control it medically. This has been amazing. I, I mean, I think we are out of time as far as the show goes. So I think we're going to, we're going to say that with our Miss Anita here, we, we got her on the three. We got her regular. We got her on a regular schedule. Medical tune-up, and we counseled her on the fluid and electrolyte management. She fortunately didn't need diuretics or intratepan or yeah, the IT gent as you as you abbreviated it. So, we've talked about a ton today. But if you had to give a couple take-home points that you definitely wanted the audience to remember, what would those be? Yeah. So I would say that that being uh, uh, attuned, being mindful that hearing impairment is a barrier to you providing the best medical care. If your patients are hearing impaired, they can't receive what you're trying to give them because they're not hearing very well. And it, it isolates them and it makes the interactions with the medical profession more anxiety provoking and it, it erodes their quality of life. And the more you are mindful of wondering about your patient's hearing and considering the possibility of hearing loss, either to just do the finger rub or to send them for the hearing test or recommend the ENT consultation, 
uh, every little thing you do to get their hearing taken care of uh, is to their benefit. And we will be back with our lightning round. Steve, can you give us a hobby or interest that you have outside the field of medicine? Uh, I'm a closet musician. I mostly play clarinet and bass clarinet and some guitar. I'm and keeping an, my and day if, job. <laughs> that sounds like a very healthy diversion from what I imagine is a demanding career. And if uh, people are watching on the video, they can see you have a nice setup. There's a, there's a guitar in the background. Uh, it looks great. Uh, I, I, Paul... We we should we should get some more talents and hobbies in life. Yeah, no, I should like do more watching, than this for sure. Watching movies. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. I'm not well rounded. <laughs> we make that point repeatedly. Um, well, so along those lines, Steve, maybe I'll ask. Um, we'll narrow it down. I usually ask for just sort of broad culture recommendation, but why, why don't I ask you about a music recommendation specifically? Something that you've enjoyed that you think our listeners might enjoy listening to as well. Ooh, um, well, my uh, my two favorite genres are klezmer which is what I actually aspire to play, and, and uh, Gypsy Jazz, also known as Django Jazz, because Django Reinhardt was the, the originator of it. And uh, there's tons of it you can find uh, streaming online. It's fantastic stuff. I, I bet you Paul knows what, what that is, but I am... <laughs> the former, not the latter. I have some, I have some digging yeah. too. I always like to ask the question about advice or feedback that you've gotten throughout your career, Steve. So you've you've accomplished a lot in your career, but what's what's some advice or feedback along the way that you would pass on to our listeners? I went through a, a woodworking phase many years ago, and carpenter friends all had the same advice, which was measure twice, cut once. <laughs> and uh, I think it's broadly applicable. I think woodworking is also one of those hobbies that is, it's just a good hobby because a lot of times you have to wear ear protection. You're just sort of, uh, it's a good way to take your mind off other things. You really have to focus on what you're doing if you want to keep all your fingers, (laughs) that sort of thing. So I enjoy it. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. (laughs) Great stuff. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com. And while you're there, sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. Plus, twice each month, you'll get our Curbsiders Digest, recapping the latest practice-changing articles, guidelines, and news in internal medicine. And we're committed to high-value practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we want your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. You can also email us at askcurbsiders at gmail.com. Reminder that this and most episodes are available through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org for CME credit. And a special thanks to our writers and producers for this episode, Dr. Kate Grant um, and Andrea Bedigau. The Curbsiders is produced and edited by the team at Podpaste. Elizabeth Proto runs our social media. Stuart Brigham composed our theme music. And with all that, Paul, until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And as always, our main Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams, thank you and goodbye. 